0: You're listening to the Joyous Podcast with Mike Carden, where we talk to the world's most interesting business thinkers about life and work, and work and life. Today's guest is Kim Scott. For show notes and other content referenced in this podcast, visit joyoushq.com/podcasts. And now,
1: here's Mike. Hello, welcome to the Joyous Work Podcast, where we talk work and making work great. I'm Mike Cardin, co founder of Joyous. Gosh, I've been excited for this podcast. My guest today is Kim Scott, author of Radical Candor Be a Kick Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity. I think Radical Candor is the most dog eared book in our library (laughs) at Joyous. Uh, Kim is also the author of Just Work How to Root Out Bias, Prejudice, and Bullying to Build a Kick Ass Culture of Inclusivity. And Kim is the co founder of the company Radical Candor and hosts the Radical Candor podcast alongside Jason Rossoff. If you haven't checked that out, you should. If that isn't enough, before all that Kim was a member of the faculty at Apple University and before that led AdSense YouTube and DoubleClick Teams at Google. Kim, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much. I have really been lo- I always enjoy a conversation with you. It's a joyous thing, and that <laughs> is the goal, right? We should love our work yeah. and love each
1: other. Oh, and we're going to talk about that today. Look, Kim, I was lucky enough to spend some time in your front room with a cup of tea a few months ago, overlooking the verdant hills of Silicon Valley. And look, people who listen to this podcast know I love a good origin story, and you have this captivating origin story, which I think, at least in that story, started off with managing a a pediatric clinic in, in Kosovo. Do you want to talk us through how that came about?
0: Yes. So I why was I in Kosovo, which is not actually the origin story of Radical Kino, although that a lot of great stories did come out of there. But I I when I was 12 years old and and read the diary of Anne Frank, I made myself a very solemn promise that I wouldn't be one of those people who did nothing in the case of genocide. And when 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 Everything was happening in Yugoslavia. My twelve-year-old self was in the former Yugoslavia. My twelve-year-old self kept saying, "Kim, you're 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 doing nothing," and and not only that, there have obviously been other genocides as well. And and then a friend of mine said, "Well, I'm going to go to Kosovo and and she's a pediatrician and work there, and they need someone to go and." And, and manage all the operation. And you would be great. And so my 12-year-old self said, you are not allowed to say no to this. And so that was how I wound up managing a, a pediatric clinic in Kosovo.
1: I, I think I made a few promises to my 12-year-old self that I'd well and truly forgotten <laughs> by the time I was probably 14. So that's, that's quite impressive. What Just, I've got to, I've got to know, what was it like? What was, it's, it's funny for me. I visited a lot of the Balkans recently and it's like, you have such a different view of it when you're there versus like, I I know the, I know the history. I know the history well, in fact, I studied it, but it's, it's so different being on the ground. What, What was it like being in Kosovo?
0: It was really, it was fascinating, actually. The, the, so when I first got there, we were actually in Macedonia because it wasn't yet safe to go back in. And and Macedonia was incredible. I think you and I talked about this. Macedonia was incredible. I would take these long hikes, and you'd come upon these villages where people were were making cloth in the same way they had for a thousand mm-hmm. years. Actually, weaving it on the hillside, and that was really that was really inspiring to see and cool. And then and when you got into Kosovo, the thing that was really striking to me. Well, I remember we took a helicopter trip over over parts of parts of the country where we were working. And the thing that was really striking to me was the bombing, the NATO bombing had been quite strategic and hadn't actually done that much damage. The amount of damage that people with matches had done was far mm. more devastating. And I, I just I remember thinking this this sort of human human ability to create massive destruction out of hatred, out of hatred for no good reason, really was, and out of hatred that's generated by, by a really evil leader, is, is something that I'll never forget. It was, really, it was really sobering. And at the same time, there were so many people there who were, who were so determined to, to make this right And in fact, I think that the what would have been what would have been probably two million people killed became two million people who were displaced from their homes for a few months and then able to come back as a result Mm. of, of the intervention. And so it's I have thought a lot about what I learned there since the invasion of Ukraine.
1: Yeah, of course. Right. Yeah. be Front of mind. Right. I'll, in um, fact,
0: I'll tell you a funny story that has nothing to do with Radical Ganner, but it's a funny story. So I'll tell it to you. At one point, at one point I was there. I was in Kosovo with two friends of mine, one of whom I, I, I had lived in Moscow with. And I don't know if you recall, but at one point the Russians had taken over the airport and they were making it difficult. The uh, and so there there were there were troops that but it resonated from World War II. Obviously, there were troops from Germany. There were troops from Russia. There were troops from France or troops from the U.S. Troops from the U.K. were Australian troops. And and at one point, we were driving from from where we were living to the pediatric clinic where we were working, and there was a column of Russian tanks looking like it was going to go down into into where where all the NATO troops were. And my friend and I were like, huh, maybe we'll just stop and talk to these Russians
1: since, right. we, spe- since we speak be- Russian.
0: <laughs> and we I have a picture, actually. We climbed up on the tank and we were talking to these guys and we're like, oh, guys, we're all friends. <laughs> don't go in there. And I don't know that we prevented an incident, but we imagine that we had. So that was uh, well, well. You some humanized high drama. it,
1: though, right? Yeah, you know, yeah, like,
0: yeah, yeah. I lived in Moscow. Where are you from? In Moscow? Yeah. And I think that it's it's important to remember that that people are people.
1: Hey, Moscow reminds me. You diamond cutting?
0: Yes. Yeah. That was, in the, that was the other. Yeah, the other <laughs> thing, and and that there you had the origin story of my interest in management. So I. Studied In college, I studied Russian literature, and I thought, oh, business is boring. All you do is you pay people. What's so interesting about that? What I really care about is human nature and relationships. And and so I found myself after well, it's not clear what one does with a Slavic literature degree. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I moved to Russia, and and I wound up working for this this New York-based diamond company. And my job was to set up a diamond cutting factory and to hire these these Russian diamond cutters. And so I thought this was going to be easy because the ruble had collapsed. I had dollars. And I went in to talk to them. And it turns out that they didn't just want money. They also wanted to have a picnic. So I'm like, well, I can have, I can do a picnic also. And so, <laughs> uh, And so I, I bought a bottle of vodka and showed up at the picnic. And by the time the bottle of vodka was done, I realized that the thing that I could do that the state could not do was was to give a damn to really show these people that because what they really were afraid of and this you can imagine this I keep thinking about this but what these guys wanted to know and they were all guys what they wanted to know was that they would have a boss who cared about them enough to get them and their families out if things went sideways in Russia. And that was when I realized that management is actually quite interesting. Like that, it really matters. That it's about human relationships. <laughs> That's what the essence of of uh, good management is. And and that was when that was probably when my management career began.
1: I like the um the way that a picnic in Russia is a bottle of vodka.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, there was let's some let's food. There was a little bit. Ah, oh,
1: <laughs> there was some sandwiches, maybe. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. They brought the food. <laughs> I brought the vodka. <laughs>
1: Hey, so so I, I guess that yeah, between that and publishing Radical Candor, there's you know, A this whole period happens. of Google yeah. and other stuff. But the, the initial ideas sound like they start percolating, you know, when you're in when you're in the diamond cutting factory in Russia. Talk talk me through that next part of your career and how the I, I guess how the the thesis of radical candor developed
0: yeah so after after I had been in Russia for a while, i I was I, I realized I needed i want to come back home. And I couldn't figure out how to come back home. so I went to business school because I figured that would open up some opportunities. And after business school i I worked at a couple of startups. and one of the one of which i there was another sort of important moment when when the startup Had overhired, and then there was a correction, and they had to do a layoff. And the CEO of that of that startup was super young, had no had had never been taught how to manage, and and bungled the job like he did it in an incredibly Mm -hmm. harsh, unnecessarily harsh way. And that was another moment when I realized management really matters because the way these people, the way you do this, either creates trauma for people or or it helps them find their next thing and unfortunately i think i I think in that case the ceo created some trauma and then i decided the the way the way forward was for me to be the ceo like if i were in charge everything Mm -hmm. would be great because i was not a jerk and then i started my own company and lo and behold human nature did not change just because I was in charge. <laughs> but, and so it, a lot of the, a lot of the problems also repeated themselves. I was really not that much better than, than the guy who I had dismissed as this complete jerk. And the, and then my company failed also. And, and the nice thing about tech is you only fail, it only gets better. You keep failing. And, <laughs> and, and so next I went to Google and that worked out much better. And it was really there. There were several moments at Google that that sort of made me think really hard about what it meant to to be a good manager, and showed me some positive examples. So one of the one of the things that happened was I had to give a presentation to the founders and the CEO about how the AdSense business was doing. And I charged into the room and there in one corner of the room was one of the founders on an elliptical trainer stepping away. And, <laughs> this is yeah, how I yeah, imagined
1: Google too, right? Yeah, we, yeah <laughs> wearing
0: toe shoes in a bright blue spandex uni, unitard, super tight, not what I was wanting or frankly expecting to see. And... And there in the other corner is the CEO just doing his email. It's like his, bla- his brain has been plugged into the machine. So probably like you in such a situation, I felt a little nervous. How was I supposed to get his attention? Luckily for me, the AdSense business was on fire. And when I said how many new customers we had added, then he al- the CEO almost fell off his chair. And he said, what did you say? This is incredible. Do you need more engineers? Do you need more marketing dollars? So I'm thinking the meeting's going all right. In fact, I now believe that I am a genius. And I <laughs> marched out of the room after the meeting was over past my boss, and I'm expecting a high five, a pat on the back. And the, instead, she says to me, why don't you walk back to my office with me? And I thought, oh, wow, I've screwed something up, and I'm sure I'm about to hear about it. And she began, although I was open to hearing about it from her because she had solicited feedback from me about her own performance. So I knew that mm-hmm. she's, but still never really what you want to hear. And and she began by telling me what had gone well in the meeting, not what had gone badly, not in the feedback. I don't know if I'm allowed to. Cuss on your on your <laughs> podcast, not in the feedback you can, sandwich. You
1: can cuss. You can not
0: in the shit sandwich <laughs> sense of the word, but really seeming to mean what she said. And 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 of course, though I didn't really want to hear about the good stuff. All I wanted to hear about yeah. was what I had done wrong. And eventually, you get to the meat. Yeah, yeah. She <laughs> said, "You said I'm a lot in there. Were you aware of it?" And I made this brush off gesture with my hand. Ah, I know. It's a verbal tick It's no big deal, really. And then she said to me, I know this great speech coach, and I bet Google would pay for it. Would you like an introduction? And once, I'm not taking the hint. Once again, I make this brush-off gesture with my hand. I said, I am busy. Didn't you hear about all those new customers? And then she stopped. She looks me right in the eye, and she said, I can tell when you do that thing with your hand that I'm going to have to be a lot more direct with you. When you say um every third word, it makes you sound stupid now. She's got my full attention. (laughs) And some people might say it was mean of her to say I sounded stupid. But in fact, it was actually the kindest thing she could have done for me at that moment in my career. Because if she hadn't used just those words with me, and by the way, she would never have used those words with other people on her team who are perhaps a better listener than I was. But she knew me well enough to know that if she didn't use just those words, then I wouldn't, she wouldn't be able to penetrate my thick
1: skull.
0: And and because she was willing to go there, that's what got me to the speech coach and to learn that she was not exaggerating. I literally said um, every third word. And this was news to me because I had been giving talks my whole career. I'd raised money for all these startups giving presentations. I thought I was pretty good at it. But when I visited the speech coach, I learned that I literally did say um, every third word. She was not exaggerating. And it was almost like I suddenly realized I'd been marching through my whole career with a giant hug of spinach between my (laughs) teeth. And nobody had had the common courtesy to tell me that it was there. And, And this really got me to thinking, why had no one told me, for one thing, but also... What was it about my boss's management style that made it so easy, seemingly easy anyway, for her to tell me? And I realized in in her case, I really boiled down to two basic things. She cared about me, not just as an employee, but as a human being. And she was willing to challenge me directly. And that combination is really what I call radical candor.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so empathy and and honesty kind of in, in one hit, right?
0: Yeah, or compassion. Uh, I think empathy, hmm. sometimes empathy can be paralyzing and can lead to burnout. Because if I literally, let's take an extreme example. If I walk past someone who's drowning and I have perfect empathy for them, then I also feel like I can't breathe. And then it's harder for me to help. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, but compassion is where I... Can imagine how they feel but I know I don't myself feel that way in the moment and therefore I have more reserves to help
1: oh yeah that's interesting isn't it because the, the psychology of empathy is fascinating if you ever look at the kind of almost the brain chemistry of it it's yeah. like you're, you're yeah, it's controlled by the same part of your brain that controls your your response to your own physiology and yeah, it's, it's like a lot of empathy comes from the idea that you know, it actually comes from the physical nature of if yeah. someone's in trouble, I I actually have a physical feeling of what that what that is, which yeah. Yeah, as you say, that's not it's not actually generally helpful in the context of of helping someone, is it?
0: it? I think it's it can be useful. I think without some level of empathy, compassion is probably impossible. So I don't want to I don't want to say empathy is bad and compassion yeah. is good. Empathy is necessary. Paul Bloom has written uh, some great books uh, on empathy that really explore this. That that is that are worth reading if if your listeners are interested.
1: Um, I think that the um the the other part of that too is that I guess the sort of the easy misinterpretation of radical candor where you don't have that piece of compassion in it. So yeah, I've, yeah. I've heard is, the comparison yeah, made before to like maybe to Ray Dalio's principles where he... Different. Yes. I know someone yeah. who worked at that organization.
0: Yeah, so do Wasn't I. Wasn't a
1: happy person. No, <laughs> yeah, so.
0: no, no, awful. Some awful behavior, or what I consider to be awful behavior anyway. Yeah, so if you think about radical candor in terms of a two by two framework, where the the vertical line is care personally, the horizontal line is challenge directly. When you do both, you're in the upper right hand quadrant where you care personally. Um, if you challenge directly without showing the upper right hand quadrant, sorry, is radical candor. However, if you sh- if you challenge directly without showing that you care personally, then you're in the bottom right hand quadrant, and that's obnoxious mm-hmm. aggression. And I t- I took a look at Dalio's book, and it's I don't know three hundred and fifty pages, and there's four pages about caring personally. So I'm gonna go ahead and put. The radical I got trans- I got it given to give it to me as a Christmas it, yeah.
1: present from one of our VCs. Like that's 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 all you yeah, need to know. Yeah, be, yeah, yeah, so I'm
0: not, I'm not surprised. Uh, you can, you can give him you can give him back. Radical candor.
1: It's a good idea. Hey, look, I think that I, I mentioned that radical candor was yeah one of the kind of more doggy at books in our collection at, at Joyous, and I think it's because the behaviors that it generates have been just so helpful to us. They yeah. really have, and I think it's that thing of, of it's also an an interesting coaching moment because you can follow other leaders in there and you can see that they're like, you know, that, that on the two axis you mentioned, you know, they'll be too highly emphasized on one rather than the other. And it's just such an easy framework to coach around. So I think for anyone out there and and the listeners who are managing people, it's just a, it's a great read just from the perspective of helping you actually understand how your, your leaders work.
0: Yeah. And, and also I think it's important to remember, we all make these mistakes. Like we're all obnoxiously aggressive, which is what I call it when you, when you challenge directly, but don't show you care personally. And when you, when you care, but don't challenge, I call that ruinous empathy. And, and we all make that mistake. And, and unfortunately we all make the worst mistake of all sometimes, which is manipulative insincerity where you're neither caring nor challenging. You're just focused on, you're focused on remaining silent usually and, or even saying something you don't mean in, in order to gain something.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Hey, so you wrote a book called Just Work, which is coming out in paperback now.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. I want to say in in the spirit of radical candor, the title Just Work just didn't work. I think (laughs) I meant sort of like, Ju- work justly, maybe. But anyway, the the new title for the paperback is gonna be Radical Respect. And it's it's gonna be about working together joyously, right?
1: Nice, nice. Why what actually what what made you were so successful with radical candor, but why why did you write that book? Why did you write?
0: Well, you know what? If you write a book about feedback, you're going to get a lot of it. And indeed, I did. And some of the most meaningful feedback that I got about radical candor came when I was I was giving a radical candor talk at a tech company in San Francisco. And the CEO of that company had been a colleague of mine for the better part of a decade. She is a person who I like and respect enormously and one of too few Black women CEOs in tech. And when I finished giving the presentation, she pulled me aside and she said, Kim, I'm excited to roll out radical candor. I think it's going to help me build the kind of culture I want. But I got to tell you, it's much harder for me to roll it out than it is for you. And she went on to explain to me that as soon as she would offer anyone, even the most compassionate, gentle criticism, she would get slimed with the angry black woman stereotype. (laughs) And I knew that this was true. And as soon as she said it to me, I realized that I had not been the kind of colleague that I imagined myself to be. I had failed to be an upstander. I had failed even to notice the things that were happening, this kind of bias or worse that was happening to her. The second thing I realized was that I, not only had I been in denial about what was happening to her as a black woman in the workplace, I had also been in denial about the things that were happening to me as a white woman in the workplace. And, and but I, and that's hard for the author of a book called Radical Candor to admit. But I th- there were a whole host of things that I just didn't want to deal with. So I pretended they weren't happening. And perhaps the thing that I was most deeply in denial about were the times when I was the person who caused harm, where I said or did something, which we are all bound to do, by the way, where yeah. I was the one who said or did the biased thing. And so I started thinking about the fact that because of this, I had, even as a leader, I had imagined I was always creating these BS-free zones and, and I realized I'd failed there too. So it was sort of like, it was a big, it, it, was, a big, it was some important feedback. And, and that was what made me realize I needed to go back and spend a lot more time than I had in the book Radical Candor thinking about the different ways that bias, prejudice, and bullying can taint our feedback. Both our ability to give it and our ability to receive it, and what to do about that.
1: It's interesting. I'm obviously in the in the category of people least likely to notice their own privilege, being a middle aged white dude. (laughs) Except um, that you just
0: you just admitted that. So (laughs) uh,
1: yeah, Um, I don't think admitting it's quite enough. But the the I read Amy Edmondson's new book recently on failing and how failure can be good and all of these sorts of things. And one of the things that it struck me in that because it just it was such an aha thing is that. If you're in this you know, t- world of tech or the world of Silicon Valley, the idea of failing and failing fast and learning from failure is really embedded. And it's like this idea that's like it's a really useful important. idea. Yeah. Yeah, really important. But actually, failure actually has a lot less downside for me as, yeah. a, as a privileged class than maybe an underrepresented person, because literally failure on them typically reflects beyond themselves to their whole, to their whole group, right? Yeah, to, their, co- to their cohort.
0: Claude Steele, who wrote this great book called Whistling Vivaldi, calls that stereotype threat. And so I think that that it the the stakes of failing are are much higher if if you come from a historically marginalized group. And as a as a white woman, it's it is I'm I'm at the same time that I am systemically disadvantaged, I'm systemically advantaged, right? and so it can be very confusing but and i have real i've come to realize that it was much safer for me to fail than than it was for my colleagues who weren't white and it was more dangerous for me to fail than it was for for like my husband who's a white man and and it's it's interesting to think about that when risk taking is such an important part of success and yet you're in a group that makes it more difficult to take risks, more risky—not just more difficult, but more legitimately more risky. I, I think that's really important. That's a way in which privilege compounds, and I think you're you're pointing to something that's
1: really important uh, for
0: for folks to be aware of.
1: Whistling Vivaldi—I have to look that up just purely on that title. Oh,
0: it's a wonderful. <laughs> it's a so so Claude Steele, who wrote the book, is a black man, and he found that in certain neighborhoods when he was walking he could tell that people were you know that they that were were crossing the street to avoid him but he found that if he whistled Vivaldi he could over he could overcome that that stereotype and 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 have people treat him the way they were treating each other which is terrible that he had to do it And, and it's it's really a study of the different ways that bias impacts us all, and that we all have these biases. And bias is a pattern. And as human beings, we're pattern makers. And sometimes we make good patterns, and sometimes we make bad patterns.
1: <clears throat> and
0: and what we can do, the book is really beautiful about what we can do to make good patterns and correct the bad pattern.
1: Yeah, so much of of you know, what I get out of books, including Radical Candor, is just this idea that oh, you need to be Really mindful of actually how you behave, right? Yes. That, that that we have this natural thing, which is that we just respond in a way which makes people happy, yeah. And it, you know, and and we make people happy on the sort of first level. So I don't know. Someone comes to me and they say, "Look at this work I've done on the on the website," and my natural response is like, "Oh, it's great," whereas my actual thought process is, "Oh, I should." I should think about this. I should spend some time on this. I, yeah. I should respond later. But yeah, you know, we're we socialized not to do that. We're still, yeah. I said, "Oh, um, interesting. I'll have a look at that." The person, if they weren't used to the honesty I try and come across with, they would be a taken back, wouldn't they? They'd be like, "Yeah, oh, I, I guess I've done something wrong." or yeah. there's just so much of that, and the, 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 it seems the, the further you kind of move up the, the leadership chain, the, the more likely you are to get disconnected from the actual outcomes of your behaviour.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a funny example of that is, comes from Bob Rubin. When he was the, when he was leading Goldman Sachs, he was walking around the floor at the trading floor and someone had bought gold and he made this offhanded comment. Oh, I like gold. And, and the next time he walked around the trading floor, he found that Goldman Sachs was way long gold. <laughs> and he was like, why are you all buying so much gold? And they were like, well, you told us to. So yeah. I think it's, I think it's really important to be be aware as a leader that you need to give, you need to focus on the good stuff. You need to give more Mm -hmm. praise than criticism, but also to be aware that your words may have an impact that you don't intend for them to have. And to say, here are the things I love about this website and Mm -hmm. notice a couple of them and say, I know what you really need from me is some critical feedback. Let me look at it more closely, and I'll get back to you with that. And and so you're you're presenting it to the person as though it's a gift, not not a threat.
1: Yes. Hey, uh, Hillary Clinton's book. There's this great little section in there where, just after um, Bill Clinton becomes president, and she's doing one of her first ever sort of official visits, and someone says to, her, "Hey, are you thirsty? Do you want a drink?" And she's like, "Oh, yeah, maybe I'll have a." I'd like a Dr. Pepper. And apparently, she said it was like, <laughs> just the first thought that came to her mind. The mountain of Dr. Pepper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. she had frequently had Dr. Pepper. It wasn't like her favorite thing. Mm-hmm. And then from then for the next six, the next eight years, every hotel room she arrived in, the minibar was full of Dr. Pepper. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, you know, she you know, created this monster. So. This Dr. Pepper monster. That's mm. funny. So Radical Candor is, is a partner Yeah, is it a partnership with Joyous? Yes. Uh, Do do you wanna tell me how that came about?
0: Well, so one of the things that I have found about radical candor is that people often really love the idea of radical candor, but they need to put it into practice. They need practice. Because it's easy for me to say, be radically candid. It's easy for you to say, yes, I want to be radically candid. But it's really about behavior change. Cause as you said, we're all socialized to say the nice thing that we don't really mean. One of the one of the reasons I think that we're often not radically candid is we've been taught we learn to speak. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And sometimes people are able to read a book and change their behavior, but more often they need more than a book. And so you and I started talking about and I started working with your team. To think about what are the things we could do to help people put these ideas into practice, so that radical candor, so that people are walking the radical candor talk, and it was really fun to break it down into the th- into the behaviors, into the things that we could do, there. small behaviors, not like the six sig bark. But how could w- how could we make it more fun to roll out radical? So it was, and I, I think we built something really great together. It was, it was really fun to work on.
1: Yeah. It's, it's an awesome framework and, and I'll put a, I'll put a link in, in below this podcast so people can check it out. But it's, I guess it is that thing of allowing you to actually practice the behaviors. Yeah. And get feedback on the behaviors. You know, get yeah. Get feedback yeah. on is how it, you're how you're doing it. You know? Yeah.
0: Is it really but, happening? Yeah. I, I think I'm being radically candid, but how do what that doesn't what I think doesn't really matter. It's how, how do my colleagues perceive me. And because yeah. very often I think I've said the thing, but the other person hasn't heard the thing. And so it's like the 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 biggest problem with communication is the illusion that it has happened. Is
1: yeah, especially
0: yeah. where you don't really want to say the thing. It's so easy to pull your punches in a way that not that radical should feel like a punch. but but it it's so easy to back off, go the wrong way on the challenge directly dimension, and then you just leave the other person confused, but you're not mm. you, you imagine that you've said the,
1: yeah, I think that I've got to say this is just from personal experience when i when I first read it and started practicing it. I probably just went too hard on that that vector of just okay. I'm going to give you some solid, honest feedback here, and and I probably did come across as a being an asshole. I just don't think there's another way of describing it.
0: Look, Uh, even as I was writing the book, my editor would occasionally write in the margins, "Care personally?" question (laughs) mark So, so that's why you have a great editor. They they they. It is, it's easy to think because you're, you're, you are so clear in your mind about what your intentions are. Your intentions yeah. are very good, but radical canter gets measured, not at your mouth or in your head, but at the other person's ear. And so you want to make sure. I think the part of
1: it too is, is that I needed to get some courage up to, to yeah. be completely honest about a difficult yeah. situation. And so that was the, that was the mentally tough trick in my mind. Whereas yeah. the bit about caring personally and maybe some of it came more naturally to me and it yeah. is interesting. It just it fell to the back because it was the easier part of the two things to do. So Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I di- I digress badly. So I wanted to close on one thing, which is um okay. this idea of of the role that work plays in creating joy in life because it's something yeah. that you and I have talked about it, but um do you, do you tell me your thoughts on that that idea.
0: It's it is really Interest. I mean, here's here's an anecdote. So when my I have twins, and when they were very little, I was picking them up one day at at school at daycare, and they were in the back, you know, fighting with each other, and and I was getting more and more and more frustrated, and eventually I I got so angry I pulled the car over into a parking lot. I got out of the car. I said, I am so mad. It's not safe for me to drive. And I like walked around the car three times. It was like one of those, you know, losing your cool as a parent moment. And then I got back in the car and the kids, their their eyes are like saucers. (laughs) And I'm driving back home. And I had a call that I had to get on as soon as I got home. And I felt so bad. I thought, oh, I wish I didn't have to work because what I really want to do is sit down and reassure them. But, but I couldn't. I had to get on this call. And so I got on the call and both kids came and sat on either side of me and put their heads on my shoulder. And I realized that business call was the best thing that could have happened because now they saw, oh, there's mom who's in control of herself and seems like competent. And and so I think it's like an example of work-life integration where sometimes we feel like there's this. Com- there's this competition between our life and our work, but I think work actually can add enormous joy to to us and to our lives, and 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 actually can be a like really a cure for trauma. Viola yeah. Davis wrote a memoir called Finding Me, and it's such it's almost like an ode to work and how work helped her heal from tr- real trauma in her childhood and and it so so work is a, a great addition to life it's not and, in competition with life in my yeah in my one, one anyway.
1: The, one of the reasons i think that the purpose behind Joyous is to try and make life great for people at work and it's it's one of those things to me i remember very early on in the process of, of building this company that um yeah i was blogging and talking about uh-huh. I guess employee experience because that was the the fashionable term at the time, and mm-hmm. and talking about yeah you know, how how we would make life great by giving employees a voice and so on. And I got this email from someone that just said yeah you know, to hello at joyous dot com yeah you know, and, mm-hmm. and it said, "I really love reading your blog and everything you talk about is just so great, but but my work is just days and days of trying to avoid being shouted at and avoid being fired." Yeah you know, and and it really was, it was that thing of going, Oh gosh, we're creating these great yeah. work environments for people, particularly if you're in tech or you're in and there's, there's actually a supply and demand issue with the workforce yeah. and, and everyone's focused on it, whereas actually out there in the land of people doing real work, there were so yeah. many work experiences which were suboptimal. And that's well, always been the thing to me. That's, that's the, the yeah. like like the twelve year old version of you yeah. telling you you need to yeah. avoid genocide. <laughs> Yeah. I'm not quite that far down it, but like it's that thing of going, oh, this is the bit where I got something which just going, oh, how do we fix this?
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's it is so it's so important because not only is does it make life more joyous, it also improves the quality of your work. You can't do your best work if you're miserable, and and you can't do your best work if you can't tell your leadership when something is broken and because then it stays broken and and so I, I love what you all are doing and i love calling it joyous because work should be a joy and life should be a joy
1: it's it's i get asked about a name it's like that's my contribution to marketing a joyous is the name That's my I love sole it. contribution i love it, right? I love it, it
0: because, yeah because we don't we don't i think we don't we don't expect enough yeah you know, a lot of people like yeah. work should be work But I remember I had a, I had a coach when I was working at Google. And by the way, like my whole business career was work. I didn't actually want, what I really wanted to do always was be writing novels, but I couldn't, I couldn't make a living writing novels. And I had a, I had a coach when I was at Google who said, look, the, the goal is not always to do exactly what maybe I'd rather be sitting on the beach right now but I'm not sitting on the beach right now and 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 the, the thing that we want to do is no matter what we're doing no matter what we're doing at any given time we want to express our best selves in what we're doing and he he gave to he gave to me the example he said one time I was on a flight with he had four sons and so he was on a flight with four small children and the plane was stuck on the t- far back for four hours so you anyone who's a parent knows what that's like it's like living hell and he said at at hour three he was just like imagining himself anywhere but there and he caught himself and he said this is where I am I'm with my children they're exuberant I'm 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 going to bring my best self to this situation and so even I mean because often folks have to do jobs that are maybe not their number 1 2 or 3 choice in jobs there's something noble about just working to put food on the table that is i think one of the one of the things that people sometimes get confused about is this notion of shit. like joy at work doesn't mean that y- you know you have your ideal job but but joy at work means that you you can bring some of the joy that you feel in living to your work, no matter what your work is.
1: What a great way of closing. Thank you so much for your time, Kim. I'm I'm looking forward to this phase of your life where you write that novel and I'm, that and, is uh, what
0: I'm doing now. I'm finally doing what I really want e- to do. Excellent.
1: You've 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 managed to to reach your passion. Yes, uh, again, I made thank it. Thank you. Thank you for your time and we will talk to you again sometime. Thanks, Kim. Thank you. This has been the Joyous Podcast, brought to you by Joyous, human conversations and
0: AI analytics in one. Find out more at joyoushq.com. If you liked this show, make sure to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to join us for our upcoming podcast with Nate Edwards, where he and Mike discuss how human connections drive success at work. This episode of The Joyous Podcast was hosted by Mike Carden and produced by Kai Crow, Karen Rayner, and Brandon Berman. Thanks for joining us. And remember, everyone
1: deserves to be joyous.